We just sit in the corner and we bat our eyes and we wait for this char charming man to come. While we're doing that and nothing is happening for us, these women are just going for it. Like we were by the metro station and he was like, whoa, this is too intimate. And I'm thinking, wait a second, I have a toothbrush in your bathroom and you're telling me I'm too intimate. If your life is filled with what you have to do every day and what is expected from you and you can never let go, you can never cry on a, on a colleague's shoulder saying, you know, I'm not feeling well, I'm having a depression. And the pressure has to be released somewhere. Hello and welcome to another Dating Beyond Borders podcast. As some of you know, I have written a book, Sex Before Coffee, A Guide to Dating in Scandinavia. And when I was in the researching process, I had stumbled upon another book by a French expat, Laura Lou where she writes about her experience moving to Norway and all the hilarious culture shocks she goes through in the process, from the Norwegian working environment to what to expect from Norwegian parties, to why you should never go to the bathroom if a Norwegian man is interested in you, and much, much more. She had shared her experience in such a witty, relatable, and incredibly insightful manner that I actually reread the book again. So I'm incredibly excited to welcome Laura Lou to my podcast today to talk about these experiences as we go through my most favorite parts of the book together. Hi, thanks for the invitation. I, I always say on the podcast that I'm excited to feature a guest, but today actually, actually I'm very excited because <laughs> I really love your book. I feel like I already know you and I could relate so well to a lot of those experiences that you went through in the book. It was, it was such a wonderful read, really well done. I absolutely love it. I would suggest it to anyone that is moving to Norway or is traveling to Norway and wants to understand the culture. So tell us, how long have you been living in Norway at this point? So I moved to Norway for the first time in 2010, and my plan was to be here one or two years. That's why my book is called One Year in Norway, because that's what it was supposed to be. And now I've been here for 14 years. I actually got a Norwegian citizenship two years ago. So I'm very much implanted in Norway now. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the book is called um, The Frog in the Fjord. And yes. why, why did you name the book that? I mean, you do say it in the book, but for anyone that hasn't read it. Um, so this is the name of my blog originally, afrogintheführd.com. Um, and the idea, I mean, a lot of people in the world called French people frogs because supposedly we eat fro frog legs, which I have never eaten in my life, but I wanted to kind of use that stereotype. And then what I learned later on is that fjords are not a natural environment for frogs. So it kind of made sense on a, another level because there are fjords in Norway, but I'm this frog in Norway that doesn't really belong here, yet I have to adapt to this environment. Um, and so I started this blog actually exactly 10 years ago, and then I wrote uh, this book as kind of a tribute to these first years I spent in Norway and this journey I went on to learning the language and dating, which was a uh, you know, source of humor in the book but source of misery for me in the first years <laughs> and all the other things adapting to the working culture etc so it's like a bit like a novel you know that i bring you on the novel of my life for those first years 
Yeah, so I wanted to go through the parts of the book today. This is something very different for the podcast. Uh, and I wanted to go through all the other parts before we get to the dating, because of course I focus a lot on the dating, but I think for people that are listening to this, it's also very interesting to try to understand why Norwegian culture, and you mentioned it in the book, you've been to all these other places, you've lived in Indonesia and other parts around the world, but you've had the most culture shock when you actually moved to Norway, right? Yeah, so I've I lived in uh, Indonesia several years, I speak Indonesian fluently, I've lived in the Philippines, I've lived in Canada, my father is from Canada, I've lived in the UK, in Denmark, but Norway, I think the first element of surprise is that it's a Western European country and you kind of expect it to be easy to integrate as another person from Western Europe and it's actually very different. And then I think it's just a very odd culture. It, it's, uh, it's, it's almost like they evolved a bit separate from the world and they are a very small nation, 5.3 million people. Um, so yeah, there are many elements and it took me a long time to really understand why is it so different? You know, wh why are there so many different things? Why is it so hard to crack that code, that cultural code? You would expect me to have less issues adapting to Indonesian culture. <laughs> but in fact, it was easier in Indonesia than it was here. So let's go through it. My most favorite parts of the book, and I think once that will be very interesting for the for the listeners and for the viewers. And I would love you to go maybe a little bit deeper into these parts. So the first one is your experience of eating the white cheese. So, um, and and by the way, just like for reference, I have actually tried the Brunost this time around, which is not the white cheese. This is the other uh, Norwegian cheese. And I was cheese. thinking about. Yes, yes. And I was thinking of you actually when I was doing it because I read the book before that. But so you're saying that uh, you, yeah, you obviously were eating this white cheese, which was very mild for you as a French person. And during that time, you also received comments on all the things you were doing wrong. So tell me about that. Yeah, I think for me, you know, lunch in France and many places I've lived, like Indonesia, for example, or the Philippines, it's a warm lunch. You sit down with your colleagues or your family and you eat warm lunch. So the first shock was for me was like, okay, I have to bring like two pieces of bread to work and eat that with a piece of cheese and some pepper, which for me was already sad in itself. So when I went to the shop, I thought, okay, I'm at least going to take some yellow cheese which seems a bit more tasty but for me it was still quite bland anyway but then when i came to the office um with that lunch with which i thought was pretty bland and small and cold they were like oh wow this is a fancy day for you and i'm like okay why <laughs> and then they're like well you don't have the white cheese like the cheaper cheese you have the yellow cheese which is the fancy one a bit more expensive that we eat with tapas you know or as tapas on friday evenings or weekends and on top of that i had sliced it a bit too thick for them so you have to be very sparse on the way you eat and how much you eat and i was thinking like so not only this is cold pieces of bread <laughs> but on top of that I have to eat the cheaper cheese, which is even more bland than the other cheese. Um, but then, you know, researching Norwegian culture, I understood that this comes from this Protestant um, 
culture. People are not that religious anymore. They don't go to church that much. But you have to do everything small and not too loud and not too expensive. You know, you have to have kind of this restraint of everything you do and everything you eat, and it has to be modest. Um, so I wasn't being modest, but then it got worse because at some point I got tired of the bread and the white cheese. And then I started bringing warm meals, like things I would warm up. And that was very strange. And I, I have been dreaming. I mean, this is crazy because it would be unacceptable of taking a glass of red wine to work, but I would probably be kicked out <laughs> on the lunch because that's okay in France to drink a, a glass of red wine with your lunch, right? But that's like unheard of in Norway. You're a total alcoholic if you do that. So, uh, yeah. Yes, I, I really love this. I actually bought Brunos uh, when I went to Norway. And then I didn't eat it all and I put it in my suitcase and it melts in a very strange way. I don't know what it did, but like it stuck together. It was kind of like had a very strange, peculiar, plasticky kind of quality yeah. to it. I wasn't really sure. And it does, you describe the taste very well. It does taste like kind of condensed milkish, like it's a bit sweet. It doesn't really taste like cheese, at least in the way that I often think of cheese. No, it's not cheese. I mean, basically, it's candy, right? It's extremely uh, fatty and sweet. Um, and But people eat it for lunch as something, as if it were a cheese, but it act it's actually kind of a, a jam, you know, put into this paste. And then for children, they have something called prim. So they put it in a tube. They put brunos with more fat and cream and milk. So it's e and more and more sugar. Yeah, I love how they have tubes for everything. It's like they're all astronauts going into space. But, you know, you're going to even Sweden, you see tubes for everything. And it's like just the weirdest. And you do mention this. They have some weird mixes in there. Like you have uh, liquid bacon and cheese, um, <laughs> and um, shrimp and cheese. That's very strange. <laughs> It's very interesting. The funny thing with Norwegians is every time you question, not even in a negative way, but you're like, who had this idea of mixing shrimp with cheese and putting it in a tube and making it liquid? Like, it sounds strange for anyone. And they're like, of course, this is natural. Haven't you heard of Schinke Ust? It's like, no, <laughs> nobody has heard of this. <laughs> Yeah, and, and actually this brings me to, to a great point is that you do mention, I mean, this law of Yante Lovin, which is that people, you shouldn't think that you're better than anyone else. However, when it comes to like uh, the Norwegian achievements as a whole, mm -hmm. that pride is really strong in Norway. Yes, and that comes from um, Norway being a small nation and it's been an oppressed nation as well for six or 700 years by Denmark and Sweden. So they are quite sensitive to all these national, you know, prizes, you say. Uh, you would talk to other bigger nations like France or, I don't know, the US, maybe. Maybe the US is a bad example. But at least in France, if you criticize France, people don't really care that much. But here people feel so attacked. Um, so you have to be a little bit careful with that. People are a bit sensitive. Okay, so I'm going to read the next part out. 
Note to self, it's okay to knit woolen things in a Norwegian meeting if it helps you concentrate. Whatever you say in a Norwegian meeting must be said in a very calm voice. If Norwegians want to show aggression, they will raise their eyes to the sky or have a light change of tone, sending subtle passive aggressive messages to their fellow Norwegians who will automatically understand how annoyed or how much they disagree. Yes, <laughs> I still stand by that 14 years later. <laughs> It's it's a it's a society. I mean, you have to understand that um, until a few decades ago, Norway was a country with very isolated communities. Um, there were even less people than there are now. They were living in you know valleys and fjords and islands. It was a poorer country than it is now, so they had less roads and less communication. So you were very dependent on other people in your community to survive. And the weather is harsh. So if you go to the north of Norway, you have islands being cut off. You know, communication is completely cut off. If you don't get food uh, taken to the, your island for 10 days, I mean, I hope you have neighbors to help you out, right? And so that mixed with this Protestant, quite um, rigid Protestant uh, concept or culture, it, it makes this very kind of restrained way to show emotions and to show that you disagree you should never show anger that's a very bad idea it's better to cry than to be angry in public um so yeah it's it's quite i think it's a, a big cultural shock for latin people who are often used to kind of you know showing their hands and showing emotions and disagreeing in public and having conflict as something not that serious. Uh, here, it can get you a bit in trouble. Yes, and I think at one point in the book, your friend does tell you that um, because you're unable to show anger and express emotions in a very open way, uh, Norwegians tend to do a lot of hiking and skiing just to get that emotion out a little bit because I don't really feel that it's natural to bottle all those uh, emotions inside. No, it's not. And they have other coping techniques which are much less healthy than going skiing or hiking, which is, you know, to drink. Uh, some are in depression. Uh, there is a high rate of suicide in Norway. So there are many different ways of coping which aren't necessarily that great. And there, there is a lot of talk about mental health in Norway, especially in youth which is fascinating for me because on one hand they talk a lot about that in the news but on the other hand what is done to actually open those spaces for people to be able to talk about their emotions without being shamed you know so it's it's a very strange combination yes the topic of loneliness definitely comes up a lot when talking about scandinavia in general uh, and I actually just recently did a video about why Sweden is one of the loneliest countries in the world. And the comments below were, well, what about Finland? And what about Norway? We're also very lonely. I don't know. It was a competition for who's the loneliest. It was a very strange um, <laughs> competition. But yeah, that's something very interesting. I have heard that expressing yourself, um, being too temperamental means that you can't control your emotions. And that in itself is a more negative thing. Whereas I can see in France, being passionate and temperamental and expressing yourself is more a sign of a healthy person. Yeah, exactly. And also what surprised me a lot in the first years in Norway is that it's you have this facade, so you always have to pretend that everything is fine. 
which isn't reality. I mean, none of us have a, have a great life and have a great day every single day. You know, things happen in our lives, in our families, in our jobs. Uh, it's winter. You don't see the sun for four months. I mean, just that is, is tough. But people don't really uh, show that or talk about it, and they just bottle it up. And when you have someone like me, you know, I used to come to work and people were asking me, how, oh, how are you today? And I was like, oh, I'm in a bad mood today. Like, don't even expect anything from me today. And they would look at me like, oh, my God. But that would be OK, actually, because it's not directed at anyone. And it, interestingly enough, because I'm like that, I got a lot more people talking to me openly. And then I asked them, but you certainly have friends like Norwegian people would come and talk to me about their feelings. And they say, yeah, but in front of my friends, I have to be perfect. Whereas kind of, I know you're not perfect, so it's okay to talk to you. <laughs> That's super interesting. I got the same response in Sweden. Swedish people told me that they don't feel that they can really openly share uh, the less perfect sides of themselves to their friends because there's almost like a feeling that you have to be perfect on the outside. You have to be smiling. Yes. You have to be, everything's, you know, has to be, uh, you know, looking perfect from your side. So people are oftentimes scared to be vulnerable for that very same reason. So uh, it's very interesting that you do mention this about Norwegians as well. Okay, and next one. Let's face it, social interaction in Oslo is like a never ending trip in an elevator. The only thing people are waiting for is to get out of the elevator and escape the terrifying idea of having to do small talk. Northern Norwegians already seem different. I had two ladies sitting next to me who are very happy to answer all my questions about the differences between people in Oslo and Northern Norwegians. What do you think about this? Because you, you spent a lot of the book talking about the fact that you felt closer to Northern Norwegians in, in, in your um, in your mentality, that they seemed a little bit more open, a little bit more direct than the people from the south. Yeah, I still do. <laughs> I still think, I still feel like that, and it's still the case. And I've also been looking into why, and I believe that it's because northern Norway has had a lot of um, trade and communication with countries like Portugal and uh, because of Bacalao, you know, which is actually Norwegian cod. Um, and also they have Sami, they have quite a big Sami population in northern Norway and different mixes. And I don't know, it, it's just a different culture. Um, also, the, the church, the Protestant church uh, reached much less in northern Norway than they did in southern Norway. So they don't always apply all of those very rigid, you know, concepts of like shame and uh, modesty. And uh, they swear a lot on the devil and sexual things, you know, which is totally impossible in the south of Norway. I mean, once I was interviewed on the radio in the south of Norway in Kristiansand, and I had just come from northern Norway. And just to make sure to double check, just before going live, I asked, is it okay to to swear, like to say this word, you know? And they were like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you can't say that word. We're going to get complaints. Whereas in the north of Norway, that's just funny. That's just like glitter on your language, you know? Yeah. So, and there is also this, um, I wouldn't say racism, but there's this uh, lack of trust between the north and the south because the south has been deciding a lot for the north of Norway. 
Yes, very interesting. I have only just been in Oslo and I was told you have to go to the, to the north of Norway just to see the difference. But all the Norwegians kept on saying this to me. The ones from Oslo were saying, you know, we're not the best representative of Norway. <laughs> you should go see the more, you know, the more fun of Nor fun part of Norway. So uh, very interesting. Okay, next one. Anything in Norway can and should be kozelik. Kozelik. Kushali. A house, a conversation, a dinner, a person. It describes something, an atmosphere, a moment that makes you feel a sense of warmth very deep inside in a way that all things should be simple and comforting. Yes. <laughs> it's a bit like hygge, the Danish hygge, except that it's the Norwegian concept, which is called kusli or kus. Um, they use it a lot in the winter, like everything has to be kusli. And they don't like awkward silences and awkward social situations. So kus is the opposite of awkward social situations. Usually it's planned. You know who you're going to be having dinner with and what you're going to be eating. And it's warm and you have plaids and, you know, or you're in a cabin and you have warm cocoa and, uh, yeah. So it's nothing uh, out of the usual or nothing surprising. Norwegians are not very good with surprises. <laughs> they like the routine and the tradition, right? The tradition. They like, <laughs> yes, they do. They do. And some, some say it's boring, <laughs> you know, doing the same thing every year with the same people or talking about Kushli. I mean, they have, for example, friends from, I don't know, their basketball class from when they were 16 and they have the same dinner every year at the same time with the same friends. You know, it's like kind of this, like a clock, they do the same things every year. And that's also why it's hard to make friends in Norway because they already have their routine and their kind of social promises to all these people they've met along their lives. And then you come in, like I came here, I was 26. And they're like, they have all their friends. They're set for life. They don't need me. You know, I've, I've heard like, oh, yeah, you're fun, but I don't have space for another friend in my life. And I'm thinking that's a very strange way of thinking about friendship and, and social life. Yeah, that's super interesting. That's a big topic for the videos that I make about Scandinavia is the fact that so many of them make friends in high school or in their childhood. And so let's say they're 50 years old, 60 years old, and they still have the same circle of friends. For me, that's bewildering because you change as a person, your interests change, and you are constantly meeting very interesting people that would be a great fit in your life. But it all, it seems like because their life is so planned out and tell me what you think about it, their life is so structured and it almost seems like because it takes them so much energy to make one friend, there's so much investment going into that already, that unless you're, you're an investment that's going to be solid, like if you're there for a couple of years, you do mention this in your book, you're not a good investment because potentially you're going to leave. So they don't want to waste their time creating a new friend that might potentially leave their life. And so it's very it's a very pragmatic approach to... A structure in your life and you know uh, this is my work these are my activities and this is my friend group and it's not going to change this is the way it's been and this is the way it's going to be it's the comfort level right exactly everything has to be reassuring and i mean 
I mean, you're talking a lot of, about dating. And I remember when I was dating and I was on these apps, you know, uh, apps or websites or whatever it was. And I remember going to these dates. And in my mind, in my cultural background, dating, first date is like getting to know each other and seeing if there's a spark. Do I like this person, et cetera, et cetera. And there it was just a checklist. And the first thing on the checklist, because I'm a foreigner, was how long are you staying in Norway? Are you thinking of going back to France? And that was very strange because it's almost like it was a question. If I didn't answer the right thing, I was out. They were just looking at their watch like, okay, we're done here. You know, as if I was in a job interview and they would ask me, um, if you're not thinking of staying here a minimum six months, then, you know, we're not interested. And there was no space for... Uh, all the things that happen in life which are not planned. If I had just said, well, I don't know how long I'm going to stay in Norway, you know, saying in a way, well, if I meet someone or if something keeps me here, maybe I'll stay longer or I don't have my life planned out. Like just that answer was extremely stressful for a lot of men. What do you mean you don't have it planned out? And I remember on the second date, this guy, we hadn't even kissed. And the guy tells me, do you want to have children? I'm like, whoa, this is this is intense. Like, like, I can't even remember your name. You're asking me if I want to have kids with you. And he's like, well, you know, I had planned to have kids at 35 and I'm 35 and a half, so I'm late. So are you in or not? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I don't. And so I asked him, I said, I don't have an answer for you. I don't know you well enough because even if I do want kids, I'm not sure I want them with him. You know, this was all like so many questions for me. I was overwhelmed. So I said, listen, I need time to, to think about this. And so he gave me time and I told him, as soon as I know, I'm going to let you know. And so it took me like four months and I told him, you know, um, no, I'm, I'm not going to have uh, children with you, but I, I'd really like to spend some time with you. And he was like, no, it's over. Uh, we can be friends. And we stayed friends, but it was like almost like a contract thing. There were no, it's almost like there aren't any emotions. You know, they open the emotion door when all the other practical things are in place. A second question they ask a lot is, do you own your apartment? Because they want to know if you're, you know, a good investment financially as well. So all of this is, you know, I'm not talking even about romance and roses and stuff here. This is like way beyond, you know, expectations of romance. It's like the hard, cold reality hitting you. And just this last thing, um, I have a, I met this girl once. She's an artist. And she told me it was incredibly hard for her to date in Norway because she's an artist and she doesn't have a regular income and she doesn't own her apartment. And so that in itself was an obstacle for her to have dates because she wasn't a good investment, you know. That is super interesting. And well, since we're on the topic already, let's continue talking about dating. I have used a couple of your uh, stories in, the, in my book because they were just so telling. You were dating a guy in Norway. You started dating a guy. And um, what was really interesting is that it seemed like you were dating a guy. 
it seemed like you were getting into a relationship with him and, you know, you got intimate and, but you, you didn't really know where you were with him. So it's like, they're very practical, but at the same time, he, 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 he got intimate with you. And then he basically kicked you out in a way and then said, well, I don't want to, I don't want to kiss you in front of people. I don't want, you know, people might assume that you're my girlfriend. And then, you know, sometime later when you got back into the relationship and you suggested you go to Ikea, not even because you were moving in together, but just to go to Ikea to get some things, he got really commitment phobic and he ran away and he said it was too much for him. So there, it's a very interesting contrast there that they're very much by the book and you have to have all these things in place for me to be serious with you. So it's a very emotion devoid arrangement to getting into a relationship with someone. But at the same time, it seems that there's a lot of commitment phobic people. There, there, there's the commitment phobic society as well, where people are like, oh, no, no, this is this is too close for me. This is too fast for me. Uh, yeah. I can't handle this. And I think, and uh, I mean, the guy you're describing, I was, you said I was intimate with him. I mean, this lasted for weeks, months. You know, this lasted for months. We were meeting several times a week. I was sleeping over. I was meeting his friends. So it's not like I met him one evening. And one day when I, yeah, I just said goodbye to him and I just came to kiss him. And we were by the metro station. He was like, whoa, this is too intimate. And I'm thinking, wait a second. <laughs> like, I have a toothbrush in your bathroom and you're telling me I'm too intimate. And I think it has to do with this public thing you know are you public are you together and I remember and I write about this in the book talking to my only Norwegian friend at the time and asking you know I don't understand what's going on I thought we were in a relationship and she was like well did you have the talk and I'm like which talk you have to be sober the both of you and have a talk about are we girlfriend and boyfriend as long as you haven't had that talk you're you don't you can't have any expectations and the guy was seeing other girls. And when talking to other Norwegian women, I realized that women do it too. This is not a guy thing. They want to keep their options open. So, you know, when they're dating on whichever app they're on or meeting people in bars and having one night stands, Norway has one of the highest rates of one night stands in the world. Um, that doesn't mean anything. And you can do that with a lot of different people. Um, and you can see someone for weeks or months, but it doesn't mean that you have any kind of commitment or expectations toward that person. And what I found a bit heartbreaking on my side of the story, of course, I hadn't understood all this. So I was exclusive with this guy, although I didn't know he wasn't. And then the other part, which was rough, was that he didn't have to break up with me because we weren't together, which is kind of a cowardly way to end relationships because they're like, well, we're not together. Why would I even take the time to tell you that I don't want you, I want to, I don't want to be with you anymore. So that's a bit rough. Um, unless you're of course in the same state of mind and, and then that's fine, I guess. But I realized that after a while that it wasn't really fine for me. Like this was a bit too much, you know, yeah. yeah, it was very interesting because you did so, you did see him with another girl. And so you do mention that, well, he didn't even have the decency to break up with me. And then exactly. when you, you stumble upon him later, you run into each other at a festival. He says, well, he acts as if it was the normal thing to do. Like, he's just like, 
yeah, we weren't we weren't seeing each other exclusively. And then he still tries to make a move and say, come on, relax. We weren't anything. So just, you know, why are you taking it so seriously, making you doubt yourself and doubt that maybe this is normal. Maybe I am too much focused on a relationship. You know, maybe I should just yeah. loosen up. It was a really harsh moment in the book where I was reading it. And I was thinking if I was in that situation, I would have reacted exactly the same way as you would have. Yeah. And you know, the thing is that he wasn't even mean or anything. He just, it was just a big cultural misunderstanding because afterwards talking to other men and even to other women, it's like, yeah, it wasn't clear. Your relationship wasn't clear. Um, but me coming from where I come from, it was, you know, I got so invested emotionally and that's also something that scares a lot of people. You were talking about commitment phobia earlier. And I actually do think Norwegians, a lot of Norwegian people have commitment phobia. Um, and I don't cover this in the book because this happened later. Uh, I, I got in a relationship, in a real relationship, where we both agreed to be exclusive with a Norwegian man. I was with him for several years. And after several years, he was still actually not committed the way I was committed. And so we also broke up because of that. So even when your girlfriend and boyfriend, there are a lot of other steps. It's like moving in together. Um, people don't get married that much in Norway, but having children, you know, but just moving in together is also super, uh, a super commitment here. And a lot of people don't want to take that step because that's scary. Whereas in other cultures, it's like you're all in, you know, you take that emotional risk, risk uh, and here they're not really that ready to, to take it. I feel like, uh, tell me what you think about it, but I feel like emotions are set aside and you do, you have mentioned this to me before. It's like they, they have this ability to almost control emotions or maybe they, maybe they feel less. Maybe that, that's what it is. It's that they're. Well, no, you know? I, I don't think so. Actually. I mean, after being here a long time, I realized that it's not that they feel less. I think they have them under control, uh, publicly. But I've seen men, I mean, talking about men, you know, um, being extremely in love with a woman and not managing to tell her how they feel. So people feel as much is this, it's just that they, they just put it somewhere inside and they try to deal with it in another way. And I think that there is kind of this risk aversion sometimes and this idea that you can control your life and you can control, you know, when you're going to have children, for example, like that, that guy. And I was, my answer was like, I don't want to plan these things. If I'm with someone I, I love and it's the right time, then it's going to happen and we're going to have that conversation. But I don't, I didn't see the idea of planning all these things ahead. So I think it, it just gives them a sense of control. But of course, nobody has control over their own life. You know, people separate and divorce here at quite a high rate. Um, I mean, life happens like everywhere else and people get their hearts broken and they tell you about it years later. <laughs> so I think they, they feel as much. It's just that it's expressed and dealt with in a completely different way. I would love to ask you of some of the culture shocks that you've experienced in your long-term relationship. I'm going to, I want to go through the book, but I want to go back to that question at the end, because I would love to hear of 
life after the book as well and the relationships <laughs> that you've had. But I really love this quote and I have used it in the book. Um, in Norway, women are fierce. So when, okay, so just to give you guys a background, uh, you met a guy at a party, you, you know, Niels, or, you know, his name in the book is Niels. Um, and this guy was flirting with you. So uh, you obviously sensed that he was interested in you. And so you get to the after party and you go to the bathroom just to freshen up and come out and you're thinking he's waiting for you. <laughs> but after you come out of the bathroom, this Niels guy is already making out with another girl. And you're confused because he was really into you and you were thinking something was going to happen. Couldn't he have waited three minutes or, you know, the time that you're in the bathroom? And your friend tells you this. Uh, okay. In Norway, women are fierce. They don't wait for a guy to flirt heavily with them. They go and get the one they like. And men don't waste time with women who aren't that interested. They're too afraid of being seen as a potential rapist. They want to seek consent very, very clearly and interest. Norwegian men are a bit lazy in that sense. There are many women interested in them, so they don't have to do as much work as, let's say, in Brazil to seduce a girl. You know just how you want to be swept off your feet? Men want that too. And when you disappeared, he had a choice between someone as drunk as he was, showing clear interest, and an exotic yet complicated French woman. The choice was easy. So. <laughs> Thank you for bringing back that memory. <laughs> Oh my goodness, those years were, those years were rough. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's, I think it, but it's not just that story, you know, that's kind of a condensed summary of, of what I was experiencing. And I had a lot of other dialogues, I mean, conversations with other women, not necessarily French, but Irish or whatever. And this feeling of being, I mean, I had never had this feeling ever in my life before. This feeling of being at a party, for example, many single people there. I was, you know, younger than I am now. Um, nobody has children and has to wake up at three in the morning or anything. And the thing is that, you know, you're looking around and you know all these people are potential dates or whatever. But you have these Norwegian women who look amazing, of course, but who are also fearless as i write it in my in in the book and they just go for it whereas i felt like we you know a lot of these latin women uh or indian or wherever you come from we kind of sit in a corner because that's what we've been culturally trained to do don't show too much interest otherwise you're going to be seen as this easy girl you know or you're going to attract the wrong kind of attention not the right men etc and so we just sit in the corner and we bat our eyes and we wait for this char charming man to come while we're doing that and nothing is happening for us, these women are just going for it. And I've talked to um, a few men who about this, you know, saying, I've, I've seen this. Am I hallucinating? You're a guy. Like, tell me how it feels from your side of things, like foreign men. And they have all told me the same thing. Yes, that they can be sitting at a cafe, like not even in the party. And this woman comes up to to them and says, hey, this is my number, call me, you know, and, and they are so shocked because they come from the same culture 
I come from, and this never happens to them. So they're like, okay. And interestingly enough, when I ask them, but did you like it then? Because a lot of men complain that, you know, women never do any effort and it's so complicated. So I ask them, how does it feel for you that these women are so clear? And some men were like, oh, well, this is amazing. I've, this is a dream come true for me. And some others were like, well, I kind of like the flirt, you know, the flirting period and trying to win a girl over. And this is a bit too direct. It's lacking romance. So this is an interesting perspective. Uh, I think seeing it from the other side, you know, of course, in heterosexual relationships, I don't know how it is in, in other kinds of relationships. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I actually found a quote while you were talking, which is, uh, Southern European women smile a little, ignore a little, and let the guys suffer and try hard to seduce them. What happens to women who grow up in such a setting when they end up in Norway? Are you used to being seduced for weeks and months by men with flowers and travels and dreams come true? Well, too bad for you. Wink back and get over it. You do have another quote where you do say that um, uh, that for a lot of the Southern European men or Latin men or you know men that don't come from Northern Europe, um, there was this lacking as well, this this uh, seduction and um, this this game, um, mm. because women are very straightforward. And so, of course, as a as a foreign woman, as a French woman, coming to Norway, you either, I suppose, approach the man yourself, or you wait until he's drunk enough where he can talk to you, which is not always a pleasant experience. No, and that was difficult for me because I wasn't. I mean, I don't get drunk that much. Not at all, actually, even when, you know, when I was uh, going, partying a lot more and and being, having to wait for a man to be, you know, this close to a alcohol coma to be able to talk to him is not very pleasant. And also you're wondering, does this guy actually like me or is he just like losing consciousness? And that's why he's talking to me. Um, and there is this culture in Norway where when people are drunk, everything is kind of allowed and you don't talk about it afterwards, which is not that pleasant either. You know, that's not really how you want to kind of start a relationship or even have a nice time together. Um, so yeah, it, it's been, it's been a bit difficult. <laughs> that time was a bit difficult because you're just kind of navigating this world of codes you don't understand and when you ask questions uh, people are quite uncomfortable to answer because they do realize there's something a little bit unhealthy about it you know like getting drunk having sex i mean said in crude words and then ignoring each other two days later that's kind of brutal i think wherever you are uh, and that's what happens a lot uh, in norway is it because you think that people will obviously people get drunk and they they over promise they make friends but all those things um you you kind of regret the next day i mean they do even have a word for it right it's uh something like phalanxed or like the the drunk anxiety that comes with um the things that you promised when you were when you were in that state and so next day they're like oh no i got too close and the easiest thing to for me to do is to pretend it never happened. So if I see that person again, I'm gonna turn the corner, walk the other way, and just um, and and never say hi. Exactly. But the, the strange thing there is that sometimes it's not a real 
feel the angst what you're describing. Sometimes they actually wanted to and they want this to happen again. And so some people end up in a relationship because they started out by drinking in the same area, party or whatever, hooking up, ignoring you know what happened and then doing that again and again. And, and eventually, I, I remember this girl, she had been doing this for eight years with a guy. And I was like, oh my goodness, like, are you kidding me? And she kept telling me, oh, you've been hooking up with that guy, the first guy you talked about for only like three months. That's nothing. I've been waiting for us to have this conversation about boyfriend, girlfriend for eight years. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to wait that long. Are you insane? Did she actually, yeah. she was Norwegian or she was a foreigner? She was Norwegian. And he was Norwegian. Yeah. And that's the thing. So, uh, often there is, uh, there is one of the, of the two persons who is uh, emotionally involved and more than the other one, you know, and very, I mean, during Corona, apparently what people would do, I wasn't dating anymore. I was in a serious relationship by that time, but apparently what people did was because you couldn't have um, that many people close to you physically, they would decide, okay, I'm going to be exclusive with you, but just for the time of the Corona. And so they would have one, two, three hookups, but they wouldn't hook up with anyone else so that there wasn't, you know, that much of a risk of contaminating other people with Corona if they got positive. But then it was just for the time of the Corona. They would just agree. It would stop there, you know. That's very organized. So <laughs> keep your emotions that day. You shocked. <laughs> you probably heard everything about dating, but you still seem shocked now. <laughs> this is why when people say, are you obsessed with Scandinavia? I say, no, no, this is why. This is why. Because, you know, I, I, I can better understand dating in the Philippines, as you said, than I can understand the dating in Norway. It's just, it just it escapes me it really does i mean it's but it's very interesting and i and i am tr i am really starting to understand a lot more about the culture uh and your book has really helped me a lot but i um what's really interesting as well is that you had mentioned that during that party where you met this norwegian guy you'd also met a few other people and you were very excited thinking you were going to make a lot of friends and so you got invited to a concert and you, this is just, I'm sorry, I'm just recounting all, all the, all the worst <laughs> situations you've been in, but uh, they're the most memorable, you know, and that anyway, so you meet this, uh, this girl who invites you to a concert and next week you go to the concert because obviously you were invited. And when you approach this girl to say, thank you for inviting me to the concert, she kind of gives you a look over to say, I don't know you, who are you? And, uh, and essentially walks away. Yeah. And that's also this drunk thing. It also applies to, you know, this never happened. It, it applies to hooking up, but it also applies to whatever people say to you in a social setting. So people talking to you about their lives, you think you become your new, their new best friend, people inviting you to stuff. And that's all, all kind of fake. Um, and I'm quite a social person. So I speak a lot and you know, I'm very engaged in things I do and things I talk about. So people have this idea that I'm drunk when I'm in these parties, but I'm not drunk at all. So they think we're on the same level where we're just talking, but none of this matters and none of this is going to count and none of this is going to be remembered. And then when someone invites me, I'm like, yes, I'm making a new friend. And I get there. And for her, it was this um, implicit rule that you're not going to come to that concert because you know that this was a fake invitation. 
but I didn't get that because I'm not Norwegian and I didn't understand that part of the culture. So that was uh, actually the funny anecdote about this story is that I saw this girl again in other parties and she doesn't know she's in my book and she probably doesn't even remember this, you know, she's still a singer and I remember I met her years later and for me it was such something I remembered so deeply because it was so rough for me. It was the first time this happened and it taught me something about Norwegian culture. But I'm pretty sure she doesn't remember that she said that to me. She, I mean, she doesn't remember any of it. It's very interesting. The first time I'd experienced this, I've never met a Norwegian person in my life. And I remember I think I was in Costa Rica and I made friends with these uh, Norwegian people, this Norwegian group of guys. And I thought, wow, great. Like, you know, we really got along. And so next day I say hi to them and they just walk past me. They didn't even know who I was at this point. So. And usually they make an effort when they're outside of Norway. Here it's even more brutal. Outside of Norway, they usually make an effort. Another situation that you run into when you go to a party is that you assume the wine is communal. So you pour yourself a glass of wine and the guy looks at you and says, this was my wine. So there's a big thing with not drinking someone else's wine at a Norwegian party, right? Wine or beer or anything you brought there, any alcohol, basically. So you bring your own alcohol and you leave with whatever is left of your own alcohol, which is in many other cultures, extremely rude. <laughs> Let's say the truth. I mean, you invite me to a party. I bring my own wine or let's say I bring six beers. You host, you're the host. I'm not giving you any beers. And I put them in the fridge. I only drink two and I bring back the four beers to my home when I leave. I mean, that's you do that in France. They think you have a mental illness or something. It's completely insane. Is that normal to bring back the beers that you didn't drink? In Norway, yes, it's very normal. So people have, you know, they know which beers are theirs in the fridge. Mm -hmm. And then if you're out of beer because uh, alcohol is extremely regulated and you can't just buy alcohol at any time of the day or the night in Norway, it's very strict. Um, so let's say it's 9 p.m. You're not, you're not allowed to buy alcohol anymore and you don't have any more beers. Then you have to ask someone, could I get a beer from you? You know, could I buy a beer from you? And then the other person would say, oh, don't worry, I can give you one of my stash you know and then they would give you one but you can't just go up to the table and just pour yourself a glass of wine or take a beer or anything that's just unheard of and the first times i had parties so i knew about this rule after a while and then i thought this rule doesn't apply to my home like i refuse to have this in my home so i would do these uh, punch uh, big bowls of punch maybe six eight liters you know i would buy rum and i would put fruits and you know and the first times I had parties, people I invited were like, do I have to pay for this? <laughs> like, no, this is a party. <laughs> is this for everyone or is this just for you? It's like, no, I'm not going to drink six liters of punch on my own. Like, this is my offering to, you know, my guests coming. And the funny thing is they always hide behind this argument saying that, oh, but alcohol is so expensive. Sure, it's a bit expensive, but it's not that expensive. It's not like, you know, you're spending your month's salary on alcohol, but they have this idea that you have to save it and you have to keep it and it's yours. You know, I don't know yeah. why. 
That's very interesting. Do they have an issue though? Like if you got all this punch and and you and you're and you're serving it to them, then do they have an issue with drinking your stuff, or is it more when it comes to their stuff? No, they don't have an issue. But what I noticed is that for them, that was pure generosity, like offering alcohol to people. That's real generosity for a Norwegian. So what I saw after that is that party after party, I would see people who would just bring wine or bring beers and leave them or not even drink them, you know, drink my punch or whatever I had available. And there would be much more sharing because I was the first one to put it on the table and to make this collective. Um, and so then it was fine. And then that's my personal success, you know, success story. <laughs> then once I went to this party of this guy who had been a lot of times at my home and he had made this tiny punch <laughs> or gin and tonic, which was for everyone. It was very small, but that was his you know, contribution. And I felt like, I think I've influenced this process. <laughs> so I was very I was happy. just going to say, you're changing Norwegians one Norwegian at a time. But it yeah. was amazing. And the other thing is with food, they're not used to having food at parties. So I would bake, you know, pies and cakes. And I remember them coming like, why, why do you have all this food? Like, why did you cook? But because for me as a French person, you can't just invite people to your home without having food there. You can't just have, you know, candy and potato chips like they would have that. But it's very strange. So I couldn't help myself. And uh, that was funny as well, because then they would come afterwards. They would come very early because they knew the food would be gone. <laughs> so they want to eat, but they don't want to serve the food. That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, they would eat before coming because the social part happens around alcohol. It doesn't happen around food in Norway. But for me, it's the opposite. So I couldn't help myself, but have the food anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting because you do mention that uh, um, I think your friends invited you over and I'm not, I don't remember if you brought your parents, but, uh, or if it was another incident, but uh, that they served you the food, you ate quickly and then th there was the drinking part. And someone said to you, whether it was your parents or not, I can't remember, but it was like, or that you, th you thought it to yourself because in France, it's all around the the food and the and the drinking that all kind of happens together. But the food is a is a huge part of the get together. Whereas there, the food was just kind of like let's get it out of the way, and then yeah. we get to the good part, which is drinking the beers and you know getting really drunk. And they look at you know if they want to buy a bottle of wine, a lot of people look at the percentage of alcohol to choose. The higher, the better, you know, because that's the investment in the alcohol is worth it then. Whereas a lot of other people would look at the quality or the taste, you know, they wouldn't just drink anything. Um, and I think it's the alcohol um, gives them this sense of not having as much, much inhibition so they can be a bit more free and all this social pressure that we were talking about earlier kind of comes off when they, they've had a few drinks. But I remember um, this party, I, I write about it in the book, where there were so many people I didn't know and I was so happy to be there. And I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to make a lot of new friends. And I heard this Norwegian guy come in and mumble to himself, oh, my God, I don't know anyone here. I have to get drunk really fast. And that, that tells you the whole story, you know, about how comfortable or uncomfortable they can be. Um, 
with people they don't know and in social settings if they haven't had a few drinks. And you know what I find really interesting is that they don't always even need to get drunk is that they need at least the the excuse of drinking because I've heard as well that even if you have whatever you want to have in your glass, it still gives them more of a permission to say, oh, well, she's holding a glass. She must be at least drinking something. I can talk to her. It's a safer option. But if you're not holding anything, then they're questioning themselves like maybe she's too sober. Maybe she's going to remember everything I'm saying and she's going to judge me. Yeah, but you know, there is a stigma a little bit on people who don't drink. Uh, and then you get a lot of questions and um, because party is linked to alcohol in Norway and there is a movement of people who think it's too much. And then there are other people who just don't drink. I actually wrote an article once because I write in um, a Norwegian uh, national newspaper and I wrote a humor piece about all the silly excuses, but valid excuses you can bring up if you don't want to drink alcohol. And that got a lot of readers because I think a lot of people don't actually want to drink. And you have so many alternatives for non-alcoholic beer. And I've seen a lot of people hide the fact that they're not drinking alcohol. They drink it, you know, non-alcoholic beer in a glass, in a beer glass, but they just hide the bottle because they want to be part of the party. Um, but they don't want to say that they're not drinking because that kind of breaks some kind of unwritten social bond where we're all drinking, so nothing matters. You know, we can say silly things about our colleagues or, yeah. I, I love that. I think uh, it's very interesting the way different countries approach drinking. And of course, France uh, is one of the great examples where people drink not to get drunk, but, you know, it's a kind of nice, enjoyable social thing, but also just with food, you know, you'll drink wine with food. And the purpose isn't to get plastered, right? The purpose mm. is just to enjoy yourself. So it's a process. It's not a sprint. Whereas in Norway, it is a sprint. It's not a marathon. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I need to get drunk. I need to do it fast. I need to forget who I am, where I am and <laughs> really be my, you know, most exciting self. So that it's not, they don't enjoy the drinking. I don't, at least correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't look like they enjoy it. Otherwise they would probably drink with food, but they're just drinking to get drunk. Yeah, and at some point there were um, girls, like younger, you know, teenagers who were drinking. They were trying to get drunk with the least money possible. And we all know that that's when you haven't eaten anything. So they would basically fast from the day before or from the morning or something. And then they would get drunk with alcohol at home. Um, and then, of course, you get drunk quite quickly. So they have all these techniques, but yeah, you're right. And I think that's, I don't think that's very healthy either. You know, I, I'm not talking about the alcohol part, but just, do you really need to be someone else or, um, and when they say I'm the best version of myself, but are they really, I mean, I've been in these bars going back to dating where there's this charming guy, you know, talking to me and the more drunk he gets and the least interested I am, because it's just, he, in his mind, is more and more attractive, but in reality, they aren't. And also, they have this snus, you know, it's this tobacco they put under the lip, and that's just awful. I mean, some of it is loose snus, so they just take a little bit of tobacco from a box, and they put it there, and then sometimes they forget. They have, like, this black 
thing leaking from their from their teeth and they're talking to you and they're drunk and you're thinking oh my god <laughs> get me out of here speaking of getting drunk and parties christmas parties christmas parties uh you mentioned this in your book where people go to this christmas party and they hook up with their co-workers so tell me about that yeah that's called a yulebud uh, translated literally, it means Christmas table. So that's a Christmas party. You don't have it only at work. You have it among friends and yeah, different people. But the one at work is known to be the one you hook up with your colleagues at. And I've heard, I've never done this in a cabin. So sometimes they do Yulebur somewhere else, like in the in a cabin in the mountain. But if you're doing it in the mountain, in cabins, um, I've had several friends tell me that they were shocked because people are just sleeping around, you know, going in each other's cabins that night. And, and that's also a code, like a secret code that you don't talk about that later. And it's, some people say it's not even considered cheating <laughs> if you're married or in a committed relationship. Um, yeah, so, but I've seen, I haven't seen like that, that extreme, but I have seen colleagues hooking up at Yulebud, uh, kissing and people I knew were married and I even knew their partner and they do that in front of everyone. And you're just like, what is happening? It's very, very strange. So people remember there's this code that, oh, you know, what happens in Yulebud stays in Yulebud. And that's the theory. The practice is everyone remembers. Of course they remember. Imagine you see your boss hooking up with your colleague or with another boss and you know both their partners. I mean, of course you're going to remember that even if you're drunk, right? <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah. It's super strange to me. I just can't put two and two together. I can't put reserved <laughs> Norwegians with this weird tradition of hooking up and cheating on their partner. I mean, I, if you told me it was in another country, let's say, you know, it was in Brazil, I would have said, okay, I can see how this would make sense. People are very like open, sociable, flirtatious. But then we have Norway, incredibly reserved. And- But you, say, you see, it's like in French, we say cocotte minute. I don't know what the name, I think it's called a pressure cooker in English. It's like, it's a pressure cooker. You have these people who are, under social pressure, their life has to be perfect. You know, we, we didn't part, we didn't talk about the other, you know, what happens after the dating and when people get into committed relationships and they have children. I think a lot of people feel this pressure even more. And so at some point, this pressure has to go somewhere and you have to let loose. And if your life is filled with, you know, what you have to do every day and what is expected from you and you can never let go you can never cry on a on a colleague's shoulder saying you know i'm not feeling well i'm having a depression uh my wife is threatening to leave me or i don't know what whatever is happening in in your life then the pressure has to re be released somewhere and as we were saying for some people they go skiing for 50 kilometers in the snow and you know, other people, many of them, they, they drink. And, and I think when they, when they have these affairs, which are not spoken of, that's also a way to kind of do something a bit dangerous, which is illegal in terms of social norms. 
Um, but it has happened to me to be on the other side, to be single and to have uh, a guy married with three kids flirt with me. And I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> and often these are men who are outside of their homes. So they are, you know, in a company um, meeting somewhere and then everything is allowed in their minds. And women do it too. I don't want to put all this shame in a way on men because women do it too and i had a i had a good friend french guy who told me that his office parties were crazy and he was hit on by all the women and like he told me it's so yeah yeah so so is it that pressure to have a perfect predictable planned out life is it that do you think that drives them to do this is it that they feel like their life is maybe planned out way in advance and nothing new and spontaneous is going to enter it. So they rebel a little bit. Yeah. And there's not much spontaneous in this society, you know? Um, and on one hand, people like it. And on the other hand, I think it's a bit too much. Like I, you know, for example, I am not very, I, my, my, my house is not tidy and super clean and it's not, up to the standard of the latest designers in Scandinavia or whatever. I have yellow walls and pink entrance and, but that for them is like, no, 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 you can't do that. Because there is this social norm. It's also Janteloven, you know, the, in English, it's called the tall puppy syndrome. So you have a field of puppies. They all need to be at the same level. If one puppy, puppy's head gets too high, then it has to be cut off. And so you can't do anything outside of the box. Um, so that gets very heavy, I think, for a lot of people. Um, yeah, socially. Yes, yes, definitely. That, that makes sense. I feel like people feel like they need to be just like everyone else. They can't really express them, their individuality. And they, they get judged if they do something different. And maybe not openly judged, but uh, they feel like they're doing something wrong. So when you live in this kind of homogeneous society with this, uh, don't be better than anyone else, don't be more special, don't act differently, mm-hmm. you have to... And, and, and again, I think it comes down to the why people drink so much as well, because... It's the only time they get permission to maybe be themselves in a way. Yeah. yeah. And also a lot of people get married to foreigners because then that's the spice of their life, you know, and being a foreigner does allow you to not to comply with a lot of those rules. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so a lot of people marry foreigners because it's, it's just a bit more fun and, <laughs> And the social pressure is not as heavy because the foreigner doesn't know all these rules about all these rules. So they're just going to do things their way and they're going to learn on the way, but they're never going to, you know, get to that level of expectations. Yeah. And speaking of being married to a foreigner, obviously you were in a relationship with a Norwegian for a very long time. I can imagine that they get excited by being with a foreigner. However, I can find that what is considered a wonderful, healthy relationship in Norway may differ from someone, you know, in another culture and specifically cultures that are contrasting with cultures that are very different to the Norwegian culture. I can imagine French being one of them uh, and in general, Southern Europeans would struggle uh, with dating a Norwegian. So what were some of the cultural differences, miscommunication that you've experienced in the, how long were you guys together for? 
Um, I think we were together for almost three years with this guy. Um, I think that, again, you know, you have to kind of fit in in what kind of life they want to have. So I've heard friends, foreign friends telling me, oh, or, or no, actually Norwegian friends, girls saying, oh, but I don't ski. And the guy liked the girl a lot, but he said, you know, I imagine my life skiing a lot. So if you don't ski, that's not going to work out for me. Um, so it's, I think there is, well, a, a cultural shock is definitely the gender equality in the relationship. So men, and that's, I think, positive. So men expect you as a woman to have a job, have a career, have an ambition, um, and the expect expectation towards men is that, for example, if you have a child, they're going to take three to six months paternity leave. The expectation is that they are not going to put their career first. Maybe my career as a woman is as important or more important than the guy's career. So that's that for me was very uh, interesting and kind of liberating. Um, but it also means that there is an expectation that both bring money to the relationship, um, finances, uh, you know, a good job. And being, for example, a stay-at-home mom is a stigma in Norway. So that's like down the line. But if you have um, a job which is not seen as high in terms of social status, as a woman, that can be that can be negative. It can be seen negatively in the dating world. So the guys want to also admire you for your ambition and your drive in your in your work life. And this is something I had not seen before in my life before coming to Norway. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. I read an article when I was researching my book, and I think in that article that girl. Uh, she went on a date with a Norwegian guy. And what she really loved is that there's no expectation for you to be, to look a certain way, to have makeup, you know, to be wearing heels on the first day, because probably you're going to be going you know, hiking, skiing, doing something out in the nature. And I feel like Norwegians are looking for a self-sufficient partner that can yes. be their equal and that can, as you said, pee in the bushes. <laughs> And then wear the heels. I mean, do it all, really. So I'm not sure that's a, yeah. a very positive thing. But like, be the be the partner in crime. Be the the, the someone you know that can hike with them for hours and not complain. Yes, absolutely. And they also want when you're a foreigner. What is a bit difficult is that they don't want someone who is going to rely on them too much. So, you know, they don't necessarily want to have to be the only one speaking Norwegian and the only one being doing, you know, administration. And they don't want your visa to be linked to theirs very often. They want you to be completely independent. And I remember when I entered that relationship with that guy I was with for several years, I had been in Norway for a while. I could speak Norwegian. I had a job, you know, my life was, was kind of structured and he told me in the start i really like that about you because then i know that if this doesn't work out your life is not going to fall apart because it's not based on me and our relationship you have your friends i have my friends you know so that's being independent is extremely important in norway and they teach that to very small children and that's also a shock because as I write in the beginning of my book, you know, I had this big suitcase and I tried to to lift it. I'm a, quite a short woman and nobody was helping me and they were just looking at me 
and not helping me. And you're not supposed to ask for help. You're supposed to be independent. So you see older people in the bus not asking for help. You know, they're very independent and they're taught very small, two years old, to carry their own backpack, walk in the woods, in the snow for an hour or two. And if you have pain in your feet, well, you took the wrong shoes. <laughs> we still have two kilometers to go before you get a warm chocolate, you know. So when you're raised in that spirit, of course, uh, if a woman is like, oh, I can't do this, oh, I can't hold the door, they're going to be like, uh-uh, I don't want to be with that kind of person. I want to be with someone who can sustain themselves and lead their own life, you know. And you have a lot of leaders in Norway who are women. And, um, yeah, so that goes hand in hand. It's very interesting listening to you uh, because, yes, I've definitely struggled with my luggage in Scandinavia. No one has offered to help me. and But I already knew that going in. I knew that was going to be the case. And then I went to Poland and all the men were carrying my, my luggage without even asking me. They would just lift it up and carry it. So that was really nice for a change because I hate carrying my own luggage. And I'm also a <laughs> tiny girl. And I it would be nice, you know, if you see a giant man capable yeah. of carrying your luggage, that he would offer his help. But uh, th that was something really interesting. And um, it is interesting that you mentioned that from childhood, kids are taught to be self-sufficient. And, you know, and I can see that being a struggle for older people because I can imagine you get very lonely as well. And then you feel like you can't really ask for help. Uh, you need to be self-sufficient. You need to be independent. And you get you can get very tired of, of taking care of yourself. I mean, it. you know, I'm obviously not Norwegian, but I, I believe that in a relationship, it's very important to rely on your partner. I mean, that's yes. that's that's my whole point of a relationship is that you mm. both can rely on each other and you can both carry each other through tough times and you, you don't feel like you have to do it alone. But if you're constantly keeping that space between each other and even what your ex-boyfriend has said to you that he was already thinking ahead, like if we were to break up with each other, I want to make sure exactly. that... We can do that, you know, without any without any problems involved that, you know, and I, I, I've experienced that in the past as well. But like um, people from northern Europe, I've had that said to me that I don't want to blend in too much into each other. I don't want to become too close because what happens mm -hmm. if we break up? which was a yeah. very pragmatic approach in my opinion, because if I'm in a relationship, I don't want to be thinking about the end of that relationship. You know, I'm with you because I, I, I don't want to be thinking about what if it fails, you know? So um, mm -hmm. a very pragmatic approach indeed. And uh, very interesting that people are so self-sufficient that it, it is both a positive and a negative uh, because you're deemed weak for wanting to be a woman. I mean, and you can be a very independent woman. You can have your own career, you can make the money. But sometimes you want someone to 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 be a strong shoulder in the time of need, and that's and I mean, told. yeah, in strong relationships you have that. But for example, you know, when the relationships don't work out and there are children involved, they just do one week each, and they just you know split all the finances and they go back to being independent. So it's almost like they never stop being independent during that relationship, and then if they break up. They're still independent. You see what I mean? It's kind of, and, and another thing that's interesting, people who are in a relationship, they don't do a lot of parties with people from both genders. They go on what they call yen tutur. If you're a woman, you go on trips, you go on for dinners, 
spa day, etc., with other women and men go with other men. And again, you're kind of this independent person. And what I find difficult is that they just don't have this spontaneity again about being all together and it's a bit messy. You know, it's just a bit messy. No, that's that's just not that's not kushli. <laughs> that's like it has to be organized. Um and yeah, it's uh, but I I have decided, you know, I know Norwegian culture very well, but I have decided at some point that I am never going to be completely Norwegian. I was not raised here. It's not my native language. And I can't, you know, I can adapt, but there are parts of my personality that I can't cannot compromise because it's just too much, you see. And, um, and probably that's why I didn't end up with a Norwegian and I ended up with another foreigner. <laughs> with a Romanian, which is as far as you can go from a Norwegian. <laughs> That's super interesting that even when they're in a relationship, they keep their friendships separate. And I feel like with friendships, isn't it very similar that if I have a group of friends from a choir practice, that I'm not going to mix them with a group of friends from my other okay. activity. It's that same thing, right? And I had parties in my home with all the people I knew because I didn't know that many people. So, you know, if I were to have a party only with people from choir practice, I would have had three people there. So I invited all the people I knew and they were... I remember the shock on some people's face, like, but these people don't know each other. And they come from different parts of your life, as if that was negative. I'm like, yeah, is that a problem? <laughs> like, why? Isn't that the whole point of a party? <laughs> you know, so it's it's very strange. Um, it's very strange. And, and there is this bond, despite this equality, there is this bond that I found later in life in Norway uh, among women, I find. And, um, and I think there's the same bond among men. So there, it would be interesting to, to study this, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's very strange. <laughs> yeah, I... I was going to bring up uh, more, uh, you know, I, I found so many amazing excerpts from your book, even how the Tinder profiles tended to be uh, very similar between men. Um, tell me a little bit about that, uh, about the Tinder profiles. Yeah, it's this conformity, you know, you have to conform. And so all these Tinder profiles are, oh, I love being in nature. It's called Friluftsliv in Norwegian. So, oh, I love Friluftsliv, being in nature. I love skiing. I love this. I love hiking. Uh, I do so many kilometers and, you know, and they're all tanned and you have to have a picture of you on the top of some kind of mountain looking at a fjord. That's very important. Um, you have to have a picture of you in your training gear. Uh, it has to be kushli, you know, so reality is that a lot of people don't ski. A lot of people don't hike, you know, and that picture was take, taken 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and Norwegian people are just like everyone else, you know, they spend a lot of their time, imagine the winter, how long this lasts. They spend a lot of time, you know, watching TV shows and eating potato chips and frozen pizza and, you know, and so they kind of sell this dream because that's what's expected from you in the dating scene. And then, yeah, and then you meet and you have to keep up this facade for a while. Uh, I find. And I don't know what happens afterwards because I've, I've been very clear from the beginning that I'm very bad at skiing and all of that. So <laughs> this has been 
<laughs> I haven't been pretending on that side of things. Um, but yeah, it's a very, it's, yeah, it's a very facade kind of thing. And a lot of people, uh, brag that they love to train, you know, to go to the gym. And I mean, that's great, but that's not something that you build a relationship on, you know, uh, going to the gym three or four times a week is not something that gets you closer to another person. You have to have a per something about your personality or I don't know, something in common, something else in common, I think. So yeah, and uh, and they you, and you have to show it again in a very subtle way that you have money. I think that you can afford these expect and expensive vacations that you've been to Thailand, you know. Um, although you you're not supposed to brag in Norway because then you're that tall puppy coming out of the field, but you still do it in a very subtle way. Very interesting. I, once again, really, really loved your book. What are you working on now? You're working on a, another book at the moment, right? I'm almost done with a new book, yes, called How to Be Norwegian, A Lighthearted Guide into Norwegian Culture. Uh, there's actually a chapter there about uh, dating, uh, dating in Norwegian, where I, I explain a little bit about the dating scene and what to expect. Um and there are a lot of other things there about, yeah, drinking culture, um, small talk, you know, all these social norms and things that you're supposed to know if you're going to come to Norway. And it's written in a humorous way. So the, the first book was more of a, a story, whereas this is uh, more short chapters and uh, kind of tips and a little bit less personal, but maybe a bit more funny, I guess. Yeah. Do you see yourself staying in Norway? Yes. Now I'm stuck. <laughs> no, I'm not stuck against my will. I think for me, um, there are many advantages at li in, about living in Norway. I, although I complain about some of the things um, about the culture, all this conformity, for example, uh, not being able to show your emotions, you know, sometimes it gets a bit irritating. But there are so many other things that I like. I like that people give you your personal space. I like the nature in Norway. I mean, it's just breathtaking. It's just wonderful. And uh, as a woman, you have so, so many opportunities. Like everything that I've built, I've been writing in newspapers, um, I'm writing books, I'm working full time at the same time, I have a career, but I have children and I'm able to, you know, go and pick them up at as early as 3pm and nobody blinks an eye. And this whole structure makes it possible, makes this kind of life possible. And I don't think this would be possible in France, for example. I have friends in Paris, they finish working at 7 p.m. And they're, you know, working all the time. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's nice. And um, there's a lot of freedom of expression. So you have a lot of platforms to express yourself. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, that's something that I forgot to mention as well, that in your book that really surprised you, the working culture and how you're encouraged to take time off. And you had, I think, five weeks of holidays plus some extras that you could add on. And so, it, I mean, and when it comes to the working culture, Norway is pretty great. It is pretty great. But on the downside, you know, you finish work quite early, but that's because you you have other stuff to do, which is you're supposed you know it's it's uh, planned in society that you're supposed to go home and take care of your family, or you have 150 friends that you made since you were three years old, so you're gonna meet them and go skiing in the cabin for three days, and then go and hike a glacier and this and that, and so when you come here as a foreigner, the downside to all of this is that you have a lot of time on your hands and you don't know anyone. And that's where people get lonely. So I've been also holding courses and workshops for foreigners, uh, foreign staff in some companies where companies want to retain their staff and they have, you know, great salaries and great working conditions, but people are just lonely. And so I give courses on how to make friends, um, yeah, how to have like a social network, because in the end, there was a study made a few years ago that showed that most foreigners who leave Norway, it's not because of their job, it's because of their lack of social network. So I think if you have a social life in place, um, Norway is a great place. But then if you come here alone and you don't have anyone around, it can be very lonely because all your colleagues are very busy. Everyone is so busy all the time. And I've been talking about this with my friends and it's like, why are they so busy? They finish work at 3.30 p.m. and they don't have to meet you for, for coffee. I mean, what on earth are they doing, which is so important <laughs> that they don't have time. We even have a word for this in Norwegian, it's called tidsklemma. It's like the time is squeezed all the time. You know, they have all these vacation, they have all these long weekends, but they never have time to meet you. You have to book everything weeks in advance. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> but I think if I can give a tip to anyone listening to us and wanting to, to come here, I came here alone. I didn't know anyone. And the one thing to do is to start, you know, it starts with you. So invite people instead of expecting them to invite you, invite them. Have a party at your place. I used to live in a 35 square meter apartment and I had parties and cake and coffee and I would organize, you know, walks in the city and I would just invite people. And then people come, actually. They are very honored to be invited to for dinner or for drinks. They might not say yes the first time if they're busy, but then if you keep it going, um, they're not snobs, you know. They actually want to come if they are given an opportunity to, but it's just that they're very busy. <laughs> and enough time to <laughs> give them. Don't tell them last minute, I suppose. No, don't tell them last minute. Uh, no. What's, what's a good can. amount of time to give them to plan it? Two weeks. Sometimes you get invited to parties like three months in advance. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, that's th those are wonderful tips, and uh, it really resonates with me. I've actually had these conversations with Scandinavians, and they they had I've I've talked to Scandinavians that have lived abroad and then came back, and they had a reverse culture shock. And one of the girls had mentioned to me that she said, "If I'm meeting a friend, even if it's a good friend, she'll be 
she'll tell me I have to be out by this time. So it's always, even if you're hanging out, you almost, you get kind of a, a window of time that you're going to be yes. together and then they have to rush and do other things. And she asked me the same question. She said, why are they so busy? What are they doing with their time? You know, she said probably, you know, she, she has to go shopping. She has to go do her hair, you know, really small tasks. But she said, it seems like people are always busy with something. Yes. And also one other cultural shock is that they never in invite you inside their home, which is very strange for many people. I mean, coming from anywhere in the world, I mean, our homes are not temples, right? This is just a place we, where we live and you have a sofa and you have a coffee table and you have coffee cups. Like, why is it so hard for Norwegians to just invite you in their home for a cup of coffee? And yeah, that's, that has been also quite difficult for me to accept. And uh, just a funny anecdote. Uh, so now I live in a house. Um, and when, when I moved in two years ago, I, I talked to my neighbor that I had never met her. And I, I talked to her once in the street and I said, you know, I would really, I could really use some tips about living in this neighborhood. And, and I told her, um, why don't you just come by tomorrow? So she was like, okay. And so the next day she comes and I opened the door and it was of course messy because it's always messy in my home. And my husband was cleaning and it's like, and I remember she came in and she, she stayed like without saying anything in my living room for long minutes. She was just looking around and I asked her like, are you okay? Like, what, what, what is this woman doing? And she said to me, the man living here before you lived here for 15 years. We were neighbors for 15 years. He never invited me in. I never knew how this house looked like from the inside. <laughs> and they had conversations in the streets or at the door of each other for 15 years. And she had never been in the house. And I had been there for four days and I had invited her in. And it's just a normal home, you know, there's nothing special. And, and just to say all the houses are the same, it's the same structure of every house. So it's not like you have anything crazy in your house. It's the same home built the same way. But there's this thing with like your privacy, your private life. And, and it's, it takes a lot for them to invite you in. Yeah, that's very interesting, especially considering the fact that Norway doesn't have the best weather, has a long winter. And most of the things are done at home. And especially, you know, add to that the fact that it's very expensive as well. It's always yes. easier to host things at home. It's more cozy and it's uh, it's just a nicer feeling, more relaxing. So that's very interesting how difficult it is to invite people to their house. I've always wondered about that because it, it really is a thing. But when you're younger, it's easier. Like when I came and I was younger and I knew students, if you're a student, it's much easier because people don't have that, you know, if you live with other people, uh, you're sharing a flat, then you don't have the same sense of intimacy than, than if you're older and you have your own home. So I think there are much more exchanges and, and making friends at that time in your life. And I mean, I've been invited in many Norwegians homes and, um, but yeah, you have to get in somehow. You have to manage to get into their hearts first, you know, and then into their homes. And it's important never to say no to an invitation because that's a mistake I've seen among foreigners who, you know, it, it doesn't mean that much. If I tell you, 
uh, oh, well, why don't you pass by tomorrow? It might not mean that much to you because for you that may, might be an invitation you get all the time. But for me, if I were Norwegian, that means a lot. So if you say no, then it's like, oh, I just opened my heart to this person I thought was my friend and they said no. So then you have to be a bit careful with that. Um, I always advise people not to say no. Always say yes, especially if you're invited in a cabin or in like, a very private party, like the party, you know, the lunch after Christmas or a wedding or even the party after the wedding, all of these things are very intimate. Whereas, you know, in many cultures, it's like, yeah, just come along, you know, we'll just eat whatever in the fridge and it doesn't really matter. That's a great way to end the episode. Guys, I strongly encourage you to read Laura Lou's book. We haven't touched upon majority of the book. She talks about the Norwegian cottages and, you know, traveling through Northern and Southern Norway. There's so many, so many really cool and relatable parts of the book that I strongly advise everybody who is thinking of going to Norway and even Scandinavia uh, to read this book. And also I will post your new book as it becomes available. You can also follow her on Instagram. I'm going to link all of that stuff below wherever you're listening to it or watching it. So Laura Lou, thank you so, so much. I was so excited about this episode. I love having people on this that, you know, when you've read the book and you feel like you know the person, it's so cool to actually meet them face to face and to have a conversation. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Um, yeah. If you come back to Scandinavia, you have to call me. It would be a pleasure yes. for me to take you through, you know, the hidden Scandinavia and and to northern Norway, especially. I would really advise you to go there next time. Yes, yes. Northern Norway is actually still on my list. I didn't have the I didn't have the ability to get there in the summer, but I'm constantly thinking about going back and just doing northern Norway to see the difference. Go in the winter to see the northern lights. That's only I'm not winter. sure. I'm not sure. I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> as you can see i'm in mexico at the moment i'm not a, a winter person <laughs> yeah i get i get what you're saying <laughs> yeah the invitation come to northern norway in the winter is the is the interesting one but but you're right i think there's something you have to see norway in the summer and in the winter although sometimes the summer feels a little bit like not winter exactly but not necessarily like summer like when i was in oslo in the summer i still had to wear a jacket so as you mentioned oh, in your book oh oh yeah okay northern norway uh yeah temperatures can be like minus 20 minus 25 uh a lot of snow dark all the time but it's wonderful 